yeah, I think redemption is a really important and powerful concept that we can use to talk about the continuity between the world that we have and the world that we want. Listening to Religious Socialism, hosted by DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America. I'm Sarah New, and on this podcast, I conduct deep dive interviews with religious activists and thinkers. Um, just quick housekeeping update: um, by the next episode, we'll have a Patreon page up and running, so stay tuned for that. In the meantime, we are, uh, in addition to being hosted by ReligiousSocialism.org, we're also hosted now at Theology Corner, which is a pretty cool network of blogs and podcasts for progressive Christian content. But obviously this podcast covers more than just Christians, and actually this interview we have for you today is with Avi Gerlich, uh, a DSA member in New York City. He's involved with anti-gentrification organizing, and he's director of a Hebrew school connected to Jewish Theological Seminary. So in this interview, we get into some interesting conversations about what happened when he and his neighbors went on a red strike, how his uh, faith informs his activism. He grew up, quote, chill orthodox, for those of you who know what that means. We also get into some pretty controversial, uh, shall we say, points. We talk about BDS, the state of Israel, Zionism, and how as the director or president of his workplace, he tries to implement or not, uh, socialist principles. So give it a listen and let us know what you think. Thank you, Avi, for joining us at the Religious Socialism Podcast. You're welcome. It's really good to be here. Great. We're actually here in our, in Park Slope in our producer's uh, apartment, so we finally have some quiet space to record this conversation. <laughs> the last few times have been a little bit chaotic, so thank you for coming down to Brooklyn. Sure. Could you maybe just begin by telling us a little bit about what you do uh, in your city and perhaps why you do it? Wow. Yeah, okay. Let's get right to it. Um, So I juggle a few things, but basically I run a Hebrew school for teens at the Jewish Theological Seminary, and I'm an organizer uh, for socialism. An organizer for socialism, okay. And specifically with the DSA, if I recall correctly, right? Yeah, so, you know, I, I have my fingers in some different pots here. Um, I, I have, I joined the DSA in January, like a lot of people, and I'm doing stuff with them, but I, I also am closely involved with some housing organizing in Northern Manhattan. Um, I'm a proud member of the group Northern Manhattan is not for sale. Hmm. And is that explicitly a socialist organization or no? Just no. Okay. It's an anti-gentrification group. Got it. Uh, it's a coalition, so there's a real variety of ideologies and a real variety of people coming from different um, walks of life, mm-hmm. and they're all just organized around the desperate project of trying to keep out the forces of capital uh, from, you know, flooding our real estate market in Washington Heights and Inwood and ruining our lives. Always the perpetual flight fight. Yeah. So you mentioned you joined DSA specifically around January. I presume the impetus was what happened in November. Yeah, that's right. Did you already have an earlier interest in socialism, or was that kind of really the galvanizing moment? Um, it was a galvanizing moment, and I had an earlier interest okay. in socialism. Explain yeah. the earlier interest then. Um, 
well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, um, I think that like, I have always, I mean, yeah, I've, I've always been basically communal in my orientation and in my, you know, early twenties and mid twenties, I put a lot into the domestic project of communism, you know what I mean? Like, uh, living in a commune or something like that. Um, and, um, yeah, trying to build a, a community that reflected my values. So I think the wake up call moment, what do you call the galvanizing moment? Um, is, is more saying it's, it's time to act on the scale of society, you know? Mm -hmm. Why, um, why socialism specifically though versus like a general social justice, you know, economic justice type of cause and curious why, why go the step further? You have to recognize what's at the root of all this suffering. The answer is capitalism. Um, what we're looking at today is centuries of like the logic of accumulation and the power of capital uh, taking its toll on the people of the world and the earth itself. Um, I just think it's a, you know, it's a matter of uh, learning, a matter of reflection, a matter of following things down to their basic source. You know, you look at the forces of development that are encroaching on our, on our, on our neighborhood and say, well, first of all, this is about people looking at your living room and seeing cash money, right? Um, these are like people who have power, who don't care at all, um, about how our people, uh, in Washington and Inwood are living and what they need. Um, right. Because it's a commodification issue. Um, they, they, they look at cash money and they think, how can I get more cash money? Mm -hmm. And a lot of the times for the people of the city, for the working class people of the city in neighborhoods like Washington Heights and Inwood, for the capitalists, that means getting them the hell out. That means making sure that tenants that are protected by our fair city's uh, rent stabilization program out of the picture. Um, and what are the tactics they use to get them out? Harassment. Um, that is, and uh, you know, the city council is, is, I think, trying its best under the circumstances to, um, to, to try to minimize this, right? Mm -hmm. They recently passed a, a series of bills against uh, construction harassment. So construction harassment is basically when um, you, the landlord, send in a construction team to do loud, noisy, loud, noisy, <laughs> to do loud work, unsafe work um, that impinges on people's quality of life. Um, part of a strategy to get them to decide, you know, it's, it's not worth it to stay here. Mm. Um, that's one way. Um, you can also, um, if you're a landlord, turn off the heat. This happened to me in my building four winters ago. Um, we spent the whole winter without heat. Um, mm. And that's how I got to know some of my neighbors because we were pretty cold and we decided to go on a rent strike. Um, mm. uh, what was that experience like going on the rent strike? Well, there are some middle-aged Dominican women in my, in my building who have done this sort of thing before. They had problems with their landlord a few years prior. So they, they have deep roots. I mean, every building in Washington Heights 
I feel like is a little town, right? So they all know each other and they say, we're going to get together in the lobby, tennis association meeting, see what we can do about it. You know, I came because I like that kind of thing. Um, and I was cold. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I joined the red strike. You know, ultimately it didn't really work. I mean, landlord turned on the heat again at the end of the winter. Um, and, uh, and that was that, you know, you can't, ultimately you gotta pay your rent if you wanna stay. But yeah, my roommate um, went to meet with the management company during this to say, what's the deal, turn the heat back on. Um, and you know, there, there are people in the, like we can buy space heaters because um, we're people of means. But there's like, there are people in this building who are old and who are sick and who are suffering for it. And the management company said, don't you want more people like you to move in? Oh, good old divide and conquer strategy. Yeah, um, which you can recognize in New York because um, for for a long time, uh, working people have been uh, kept from getting bound together by ethnic type divisions. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, I mean, what prevents you from just being sort of fatalistic about it all? You know, it's, it's very easy, I think, for certain people, sort of Marxists, what have you, to certainly say, easy to be fatalist about something if it benefits you. Benefits yeah. you. <laughs> oh, I can't do anything can't to change this. Right. I mean, you know, you mentioned like forces of capital, at the end of the day, there's only there's a limited set of scope of action we can take within the current system. So I guess, how do you keep that overall framework in mind? So the big picture sort of materialist analysis while at the same time taking direct action and the day to day, how does that work out for you? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, basically how can, right. How can I make my schedule week in, week out, go to this meeting, uh, you know, stand out in front of this state senator's office and yell um, when you know that that state senator is almost as powerless as you are. Um, yeah, good question. Well, you know, we got a, um, we got a good saying in the rabbinic tradition. Basically, you can't finish the work, but you can't give up either. Rabbi Tarfon, who said that, was talking about Torah study. Mm -hmm. um, I think... You know, we have a good, um, this is one of the good things that comes to us through our tradition. Basically, the sense that you have an abiding, um, like, endless task to, to confront and to work on day, day after day, even though the thing itself is endless. So, you know, we just learn that kind of plugging in. And in this case, we got to apply it to the, to the social work of... How else does would you say your your faith or tradition informs your commitment to socialism? Um, so I think that Judaism always takes place in the context, like I said, of families and communities, and I think that that is a really important influence on my feeling of dedication to social change, mm -hmm. because. Um, we know from the outset that there is no, there really is no individual, you know, I can't just like live on this earth for another 40 to 50 years, maybe 60, maybe more, okay, um, and get what I can out of it and move on, right? We have, you know, we're obligated as Jewish people 
um, in a passage, uh, the Shema, which we say all the time um, to teach the Torah to our children and our children's children. So that means they got to be there, and we um, we have to like we have to have kind of a holistic kind of preservationist mindset about who we are, where we are. So, like, I got started on this. I mean, I imagine I live in a growing Jewish community in Washington Heights, and um, I can imagine how poisonous it could actually be to our environment to be growing there at a time where the forces of gentrification are also coming. So I know we have a responsibility. The people who I pray with, you know, and who I learn with and eat meals with, we need to think about the effects of our growth on the, on the immediate surroundings um, and figure out a way to give back, to contribute to the world that we're a part of so that we aren't judged in the book of death, so to speak. One of the things that's interesting to me in looking at religion and socialism and the mixture of both is that religion predates capitalism for the most part, um, right. most religions. And so we have interesting resources and strains and re- traditions to draw from when we think about a critique of capital. When you think about specific, I don't know, maybe it's passages in the Bible or Talmud or what have you, what are your kind of anchor points that you think of or reference when you think about the ways in which your faith intersects with socialism? I think like the, f- I think that, reli- yeah, religious left type people often give their own tradition kind of a free pass because it's earlier, like you said. But like, I think we also need to face the the fact that we have the, you know, Judaism is one of the is one of the like, it's one of the cultural traditions of the Western world. I mean, I don't know if it's it's the, one of the main ones. Obviously, we're a pretty small group. We've had a lot of influence. So to some degree, there's like, we played a part as uh, a culture in building the world that we have today. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I sort of feel more motivated to confront that sort of thing. I mean, it's ugly, but it's kind of like, it feels to me like um, while it's really attractive to be like, oh, I'm from this world, I'm from this like, prelapsarian world where we didn't have capitalism yet and there was authentic social life you know really there's also a truth to to confront and to talk about here mm-hmm. um I, i've been thinking a lot about this in the i don't know if this has to do with socialism excuse me but i think i've been thinking a lot about this in the um the recent ferment of of dialogue over sexual violence i think that if we are speaking honestly our religious traditions have a lot to say in the realm of sexual, sexual ethics that is, like, a lot of it really poisonous. Right. And, you know, I've studied this stuff in Judaism, too. There are whole uh, tractates of the Talmud whose main subject is property relationships as they structure family life. Yeah. And, and I don't think we're free of that just because, you know, in the, like, 1970s, we invented the like concept of marital rape, you, you know, and, and, and then, you know, now we have, now we have equality within the family. Like, I don't, sure. think, I don't think it's all gone. You know, and I think that, um, I think that for my community, we need to confront the aspects of our tradition that reinforce the ugly qualities of social life and capitalism. Yeah. And I think what, especially when you get into property, that's really where 
I think you see the fertile intersection between identity politics and material and the sort of class um, sort of materialist politics because if we think about who historically has been counted as property, yeah, um, whether it's women or slaves or foreigners, uh, children, uh, I yeah, it all sort of comes together at the end of the day, a little bit. Well, I I, I hear you in being internal kind of moral critic in some ways of the community saying we don't we, you can't just give us a free pass you know, obviously the world before capitalism wasn't all that great in some ways perhaps m- many measures were much worse but do you feel you are more anomalous shall we say as a sort of religiously observant or literate person in these socialists or social justice brought maybe brought more broadly speaking spaces is that an anomalous thing um, well, so first of all, I'll say that I feel very accepted in the DSA mm-hmm. and, you know, nobody gives me funny looks or attitude for dressing like a Jew, which I respect. And I've also found from getting to know more folks in my branch that we're not totally a bunch of godless commies. <laughs> like people I know are active at their church. They taught a Catholic school. Do people kind of secretly confide this? <laughs> do they, are they public? Do they come out, so to speak? <laughs> I'm sure they'd be open to talk about it if, you know, if, if it came up with anyone. I mean, I think it just does, you know. Um, so this attracts a little bit, if you want to discuss this. The DSA in, the pre, in our most recent national convention had a sort of BDS vote, Um to support, I think it's, was it boycott, divestment, and sanctions, so it's the full acronym. Has that proven from your observations to be a sticking point within Jewish circles in, in terms of how people have reacted to that vote? Um, yeah, to speak carefully around this question, um, I think that Jewish people are coming to understand that they shouldn't have a kind of consumerist relationship to the organizations they're a part of, which is to say you can choose to buy it or you can choose to leave it on the shelf um, based on the merits. I think that we understand that organizations are something that we are an active part of and which we you know, need to participate in in order to have a voice. So I think, you know, and I'm not going to say on a podcast what I think about BDS. And why is that? Because I have a career to worry about. (laughs) (laughs) I'll talk to people privately. Right. And I'll say everything I think. But you have to have a little bit of circumspection, some caution uh, in this world. Um, But but you're saying don't, if you have problems with the vote. Don't just jump ship. That's what I'm saying. Okay. Got it. Um, Yeah, I I was, I think I was reading some coverage in like Tablet Mag about the vote and... Tablet Mag is bad. Right. Don't read it. On the record, don't read it. Were there any uh, sort of Jewish voices who were very happy with it, who publicly, I don't know, were there articles sort of on the other side of camps? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think there are Jewish people who are pretty happy about it. Um, and, um, you know, that makes sense. I mean, uh, a, lot of, a lot of Jewish people in this country have come to realize that uh, it's time to really take a stand on 
the moral compromise of the Israeli state in perpetuating the occupation. And I think that there are a lot of Jewish people, especially those who identify as socialists, who um, have, have come to think, you know, what's important is to take effective action, and they see BDS as effective action. Hmm. Yeah, it seems that Israel and Zionism is the red line, so to speak, um, within these like Jewish progressive circles. I mean, when we had when the religious socialism working group in New York City gathered, I think a month ago, I raised the question: What if we have pro-life Catholics who, or just pro-life Christians, you know, whoever, but who otherwise subscribe to other tenets of DSA? How should we think about like what it means to be a member of DSA, given that given that reproductive rights is a key plank of DSA? And it seems like you know, for Christians, it tends to be like social issues tend to be the mm-hmm. sort of hot button to stuff, and it's seems like Israel is the equivalent from an outsider perspective. I don't know if you would disagree, mm-hmm. but it seems to be the dividing line a little bit. It's the equivalent as a dividing line. Yeah, yeah I mean, so then this some of that honestly does have to do with um, a double standard for Jewish people. I mean, Christians, I don't know, like, you know, the USA somehow gets a free pass to the point where, like, if you see a Christian on the street, you don't you don't go up to them and say, Ah, uh, like, what's your position on the USA existing, even though all its founders are Christians and so on? Mm. But yeah, I think I don't know that much about this, but I guess there there are um, there are Christians who are progressive in some way who are compromising on social issues. Yeah, I mean, I would say you wouldn't. No one really walks up to a pastor and asks them in the position on the founding USA, but people, pastors do get asked their position on gay marriage, and that's yeah. probably like number top five questions that most pastors get asked in press reviews, press yeah. interviews. So it becomes, I guess I see a divine line just in terms of like, it is a thing on one hand that prevents a lot of people from making that leap over in some ways to lefty land um, mm. is because they're, they're worried they don't want to compromise on this or they're worried they'll be seen as an outsider if they come in with certain maybe more conservative beliefs to say on abortion or something like that which is I know I framed it as a social issue but it really isn't but mm-hmm. in to use loose <laughs> language um, yeah you know conventional language yeah conventional language language of the religious right at least it, it, it gets into questions I think of what is what counts it, in a way it's a religious question what counts as orthodoxy Mm-hmm. Um, is this a heretical position to take, or is it uh, is it okay to take this position within this broader camp? And I guess, I, do you know people who have questioned, I says, their relationship to DSA or to socialism as a result of the BDS vote, or or hearing anti-Zionist things and be like, oh, okay, I'm not sure if I should if I belong in the space? Yeah, well, I think that I think that there are some fairly rapid changes that we are undergoing as Jewish people in America um, around the question of our nationalism. And it's because nationalism has become such a hot-button issue here. Hmm. Um, The famous Nazi Richard Spencer famously admires the project of the State of Israel. Hmm. And is not shy about saying so. He thinks that it should be a model for the, for the, the white ethnic state here Mm, Um, barring the logic but swapping out the goal yeah Yeah. so I think that right the um, the contradictions in being progressive on America but supportive of the state of Israel is um, 
those they've become hard to bear and so i think that there's a there's a set of the jewish people in my generation who are really rethinking what it means to be supportive of the state of israel and they're thinking through their jewish identity on a basis that is different whereas i think in my parents generation a lot of people a lot of jewish people in america really mostly identified with their jewish heritage through support for the state of israel um and today we're 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 blessed to have like a growing sense that there's much more to our heritage than that and so it's become easier to detach yourself from unthinking support mm. so i think that's what you know when we see jewish people in the dsa i think that that they're probably coming coming at it from that from that angle what well, i mean the history of zionism and socialism has sort of an interesting i mean from a little i understand interesting history there i don't know if you know more. well i look sorry go on go ahead i i think that yeah i mean i think it'll be interesting to think about like the, the dsa you know as, as far as i know i mean we're, we're um we're pretty soft on dogma but but i think that we're not um passionately post-nationalist mm-hmm. as an organization um in other words we're, we're not necessarily saying tear down the state apparatus. But I think that, yeah, it, it would be cool to study the history of socialist Zionism with that limitation in our ideology in mind. Because, yeah, there's a very interesting history of the early Zionists being socialist amongst themselves. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, that ultimately fell apart. Right. Um, Reference, because, referencing the kibbutz specifically in Israel? Uh, yeah, so the kibbutz is, is a, a good point of reference. Mm-hmm. But, like, there was real... There were socialist institutions in the state of Israel, mm. you know, that, I mean, that lasted until the past 20 years. There's a, look it up, there's a thing called the Histad Root, which was kind of like a countrywide union that also controlled whole areas of the economy and healthcare. And it kind of got killed when the state decided to make a national health care system. Mm. So for them, nationalizing health care actually was less socialist. Um, <laughs> and, you, you know, but this is to say there's a, there's a robust history of socialism in Israel beyond just the kibbutz. It eventually fell apart. And I think that Israel is pretty capitalist now. But I think that there's, the socialism was also always to some extent compromised by an unwillingness to include Palestinians in their socialist vision. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it would, you know, it would be pretty cool to do a reading group on this. Yeah, um, because sure. I, I think that I think that that hypothesis would be borne out. Um, you, yeah. I mean, this might be a little bit too on the nose, but it, it's not uncommon in some ways, though, to see the integration of socialism and other nationalistic, pure, purest racial po- nationalistic projects. Whether I'm thinking of the the original national socialism sort of party um, in Germany, but also just in terms of, you know, the, the you could argue, one could argue that, um, anyway, I, there's a lot to kind of be said here, but I think also certain countries in Asia and the ways in which socialist revolutions were kind of enacted and and how they related to minority groups within their countries mm-hmm. is also an interesting tension. I mean, the, the, someone, a, a good friend of mine likes to point out that He's like, I know I'm all for democratic socialism, you know, majority control, public control, and whatnot. But he said, as a black man, what is to prevent the majority from turning against me? Um, if if you look at the history of unions in America, for instance, that you know, it's rife with a kind of uh, 
racial politics that uh, is pretty terrible and pretty dark. So it, it is this interesting, I don't know if it's like a, what blind spot in socialism or, or if it's more the fact that whatever socialism means today we would have to kind of expand its meaning to include like a broader, fuller vision. Yeah, well, what you're describe what your what your friend is describing is a shortcoming in democracy. Yeah, that that there's a implicit threat in the idea of majority rule to mm -hmm. the minority. But the pitch of DSA often is let's extend democracy to the economic sphere, right? Yeah, we you know if you believe in democracy politics, let's extend it, and that's always the pitch. But the assumption there is. Yeah. Right. So democracy, democracy only works with class consciousness in that context. I mean, I, like workplace democracy means giving workers a say as well as a share in the profits mm -hmm. of the company that they work for. And I, and I absolutely think that democracy on the level of the state is a farce insofar as we are accustomed to autocracy at work. So, like, that's extremely important and points towards a redemption of the concept of democracy. Can you elaborate? So, you said autocracy in a state, I mean, democracy in a state, but autocracy in the workplace. Well, we're just used to going to work and getting ordered around yeah. by people who have no accountability to us. Mm -hmm. And honestly, also in school. So, like, we're cradled by institutions that are dictatorial mm -hmm. um, and then we're expected to turn around and, and construct a democratic government even though we have no experience in being democratic. You run a Hebrew school. Yeah. Do you like run run it as in you're in... I'm the director, director. of the Hebrew school. Yeah. You have employees under you or how does that work? Um, yeah, so there are three other teachers and I have an administrative assistant. How do you think about workplace power structures uh, how, how do you relate to them given what you just said yeah that's a good question i give my teachers a fair amount of freedom in terms of deciding what to do also there's the students right i like to say i give the students well it's like it's a complicated process because you know in a lot of cases if you say to the, to the teen you know here's some total freedom they'll say great i'm sleeping in <laughs> right right no homework for me <laughs> uh you know, but but I but I think at least you know to some extent I'm in a relationship of reciprocity with my students. Yeah, one thing I haven't totally figured out yet, to be frank, is the position of administrative assistant, mm. which is like basically this person is on the job doing like a bunch of tough work, so that like I am free to think about the curriculum and the kids. And yeah, I don't think that's how it would work in a in a redeemed workplace. Like, I think that you'd probably have a couple of people who are, who have responsibility for the program, who share those responsibilities or switch them off. And it would probably be better. Like, I, uh, I often feel kind of isolated in my own responsibilities for, again, the curriculum and the kids, thinking about it by myself and being director in the singular, and probably would be better for the program if, I was in a more democratic relationship with my coworker. Hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, very last question. You, I noticed you used the word redeemed a couple mm -hmm. of times. Redeemed workplace, I don't know, redeemed society. Why do you use that word specifically? Cool. Um, yeah, I think redemption is a really important and powerful concept. 
that we can use to talk about the continuity between the world that we have and the world that we want. Because a redeemed world is one that like, I mean materially, it's the world that we live, it's not like a spiritual planet, it's not heaven. So as Jews we have this idea of the redemption of the world that we live in now that is coming and hopefully coming in stages, sometimes coming in bursts, right? And that's just like the world that we live in, but redeemed in the sense that its logic becomes logic of life uh, instead of violence. Hmm. Could you talk a little bit about, I mean, I have a sense of what redemption means from my particular tradition, but how would you locate it? Like, and what is its, what is its meaning, I suppose, within the Jewish tradition specifically, as much as you can answer that? Yeah, so within the Jewish tradition, there are obviously a lot of meanings that are yep. included. And on an economic level, redemption means freeing something slash returning it to its rightful place. So what's like an example of, I don't know, is it? Uh... Yeah, so um, in Jewish property law, if if some of your land holdings get um, sold off uh, to somebody in order to re repay a debt, you still have a relationship to those land holdings because in the concepts of the Jewish law, a person and their, and their land are, are closely tied together. And so if you, you know, if you get to, to get together the money to get your land back, that's redeeming your land. But there's a continuity between that sort of basic economic concept and the idea in talking about a redeemed world of returning things to their rightful place and their rightful relationship to the divine mm. right that we sort of like been in a long painful perverting fall away from eden away from our ideal world and we want to kind of like move forward in a way that returns us to that wholeness so that's the, i think that's the concept of redemption it has in it this both the idea of moving forward and the idea of getting return. to return. Yeah. And, and specifically, the scenario you're playing out just so people can follow and I can follow is in an economic terms. So yeah. A person, um, you know, maybe is in debt and has to sell some land or is going through, you know, a bad harvest, whatever, yeah. needs to send, sell some land. The logic redemption is such that if at one point I have a good harvest the next year and I have enough money, I can actually, I have the right to redeem my to land. redeem it yeah. and it doesn't so land then is not just this commodity that just moves around from you know person to person depending on the highest bidder yeah it is something that is tied to a family or a clan or a tribe and has a deeper meaning that that supersedes and overrides um just the logic of you know price bidding or something like that yeah that's true and I just want to tease that out for people to kind of get a sense of when we talk about alternative conceptions of resource ownership. And not to mention sort of the seven-year, I don't know, jubilee thingamajig. Yeah, this is connected. Connected in which all land returns, if I recall correctly, back to... Um, Technically, is that what's supposed to happen? Yeah, there's a, there's, a, uh, there's a system of seven-year cycles that's put forward in the book of Leviticus where after seven years, your debts are, are canceled, and after seven cycles of seven years, land holdings return to their families. Yep. Yeah. Which is a pretty radical thing. But the idea of returning, 
if you zoom out on the cosmic level, right. if we are returning back to the divine and the way things were, or as the original sort of vision of goodness, which are fallen form, that is how one extrapolates the redemption logic, I suppose. Yeah. That was very helpful. I, I, that was really cool to see that. Well, thank you, Avi, for joining us. You're this welcome. Was a great conversation. My pleasure. That was Avi Gerlich, DSA member and director of a Hebrew school here in New York City. I really appreciate it, although I didn't really reflect that very well in the interview. Um, Avi's call out of the double standards by which we hold Jews versus Christians, the ways in which we take um, Christianity essentially to be the default and norm in this country, and instead of examining the ways in which it is, you know, in very many ways complicit in the institutions by which we are trying to either overthrow or radically improve. So, I hope you found that conversation rich and interesting. Once again, you're listening to Religious Socialism, a production of the DSA. This podcast was produced by Devin Brisky. I'm Sarah New. We're on social. Thanks for listening. And actually, stay tuned. Uh, we, we hope to post very soon, or somewhat soon, our upcoming interview with Juan Carlos Ruiz, a Catholic priest and co-founder of the New Sanctuary Coalition. It's an interfaith network of congregations that supports and provides sanctuary for undocumented, or sometimes documented, uh, immigrants across the U.S. who are uh, under serious attack by ICE. So it's a pretty urgent interview, and I um, hope you will stay tuned for it.